Life's Everyday Mystery Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Between the years 1278 and 1455, the Genoese annually shipped about 8,000 tons of alum, that's potassium aluminum sulfate, from mines in uh, Fokia, which is now in Turkey, and they ship, uh, shipped these through the Straits of Gibraltar to Flanders in Europe. Why did they do that? So again, let me repeat. Between 1278 and 1455, the Genoese shipped 8,000 tons of alum to Europe every year. Why did they do this? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text your messages to 514-800. That's one question. I'm going to give you a second question to ponder over. And uh, that is all about a drug, the trademark name of of this, the trade name of this uh, antibiotic derives from the Roman goddess of the dawn. So the Roman goddess of the dawn, her name is used to derive the trade name of this antibiotic. And I will give you a clue for that one. It belongs to a class of drugs that are characterized by four fused rings of carbon atoms in their molecular structure. That should tell you the class of compounds, but we're looking for the very specific one the trade name of which derives from the name of the Roman goddess of the dawn. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. And our mandate there is to demystify science, to separate sense from nonsense, keep people up to date on what happens in the world of science, and hopefully keep people out of the clutches of the charlatans. I'm going to start today by telling you an interesting story. And it all takes us back to 2008 and the post office in Chicago. A man, Edward Backner, went into the post office, opened his post office box, took out a package, walked out, at which point he was immediately arrested by FBI agents. It was an interesting sting operation. How did it happen? Thanks to the clever thoughts of a worker at a chemical supply company from where Backner had ordered an unusually large batch of a chemical. That chemical was tetrodotoxin. And uh, the worker became very suspicious because this is a highly toxic substance and uh, couldn't understand why this person had uh, ordered such a large dose, which would have been enough to kill dozens of people. Well, tetrodotoxin is a fascinating substance. It's found in a number of animals. It's found in the blue-ringed octopus, the rough-skinned newt. Uh, You can also find it in some frogs, the so-called poison dart frogs. But of course, the most famous uh, harborer of tetrodotoxin is the pufferfish. And uh, usually, uh, tetrodoxin is supplied in uh, very, very small amounts for neurological research because it is a neurotoxin, so they use it to figure out the workings of the nervous system in in animals. 
but Wagner had purchased really an unusually large amount of this uh, this substance. So, of course, the FBI uh, agents were intrigued and they started an investigation uh, even before the Sting operation to see what Bachner was all about. And it turned out that when he ordered the tetrodotoxin, uh, he had misrepresented himself. He called himself a doctor and he described that he was working at a lab, which turned out to be fictitious. And they also discovered that he had previously ordered tetrodotoxin, although in smaller doses. But what was really fascinating was that he had taken out a $20 million life insurance policy on his wife. And uh, after he was arrested, the agents searched his home. They found knives and a grenade and pistol and a book on the effective doses for poisoning people. So they thought they had a motive here. They thought that he had planned to kill his wife, having taken out a $20 million uh, policy, and he was going to use the tetrodotoxin. Well, tetrodotoxin is an extremely potent uh, neurological toxin and it's heat stable, meaning that when it is in food, even if you cook the food, it doesn't destroy the toxin. And uh, we know now what it does. It blocks the action of uh, sodium ions, uh, it blocks their passage through cell membranes. And uh, this uh, uh, impairs the transmission of nerve impulses and it can lead to uh, paralysis. And death usually comes from asphyxiation because the muscles that are needed for lung function are, are paralyzed. The puffer fish, of course, is noted for its uh, content of tetrodotoxin. And uh, the reason it's called puffer is because it has the ability to inflate its body like a balloon uh, when there's a predator in sight. And uh, when it inflates its body, uh, it exposes little spikes and the spikes themselves are filled with the venom so that a predator uh, that bites into it, uh, of course, is going to be dispensed with. Well, it turns out that humans, of course, are also predators as far as the puffer fish goes, because apparently a meal of the fish, known as fugu, is uh, an exotic delicacy, especially in Japan. And its, its preparation, <clears throat> has to be done very, very carefully to ensure that all the toxin-containing parts are removed. And chefs are trained for years before they are allowed to serve a dish of fugu to the public. And they have to demonstrate their acumen by preparing a dish for themselves that they are going to eat. And only if they survive that are they allowed to prepare food in restaurants for customers. So thanks to this rather extensive training, uh, there are very, very few accidents these days, only one or two, uh, two a year. And even those usually are uh, from people who try to prepare the fish at home. However, Homer Simpson, uh, who of course is a star of the animated sitcom, The Simpsons, was the victim of a fugu misadventure. And if you saw that episode, which is really a classic one, Homer is served fish that is improperly prepared by an apprentice who was pressed into service. Why? Because the master chef is engaged in sexual exploits behind the restaurant. So anyway, Homer is told that uh, he has eaten the, the toxin and that he's only going to live for another 22 hours. And then he goes through these five stages of grief. 
but luckily he survives. I mean, some people do survive tetrodotoxin. It all depends on the dose to which they were exposed and on their overall health. James Bond, Ian Fleming's secret agent, also makes it through a bout with tetrodotoxin, but he needs a little help from science. In Fleming's novel, From Russia with Love, Bond is in a fight with a Russian agent who is uh, sporting a boot that can flash out a small blade and it's coated with tetrodotoxin. A quick kick to Bond's shin, and that's where the novel ends. The reader is left hanging about whether 007 survives or not. Well, of course, we find out in the next novel, which is Dr. No, that he does survive. And uh, note that uh, Dr. No was written after From Russia with Love, whereas the movies were in the other sequence. The first James Bond movie was Dr. No, From Russia with Love was the second. So anyway, in the novel, uh, Russia with Love was first, then came Dr. No, in which you find out that Bond received immediate artificial respiration, which of course is critical if someone is to survive tetrodotoxin. And then a physician diagnosed him with curare poisoning and administered appropriate treatment. And that is why Bond is said to have survived the attack. But here, Fleming's science can be called into question. Why? Because the physician had diagnosed Bond with having been poisoned with curare. Well, it turns out that uh, there, there is an issue here. Curare is a neurotoxin that is extracted from a vine that grows in the jungles of South America. And of course, it has a history of being used as a poison on arrows. And like tetrodotoxin, it is a neurotoxin, but it works by a completely different mechanism. So the, uh, uh, the treatment for curare poisoning, uh, which is uh, a drug called physostigmine, which uh, uh, basically increases the concentration of acetylcholine in, in the synapses in the nervous system, uh, that works because curare blocks the action of acetylcholine. However, tetrodotoxin works by a totally different mechanism. So uh, in real life, uh, the curare antidote would not work. And the fact is that there really is no antidote to tetrodotoxin in real life which is why people who have uh, eaten improperly processed uh, pufferfish indeed have uh, perished. Anyway, apparently uh, James Bond was not phased by his close encounter with death because in You Only Live Twice, which is a subsequent book and a subsequent movie, he happily dines on fugu. And you may wonder whatever happened to Edward Buckner. Well, he was sentenced to almost eight years for illegally acquiring a dangerous material, but was not charged with attempted murder. The defense argued that he got involved in a bizarre fantasy game in which he aimed to show how murder with a poisonous chemical could be carried out, but he never intended to actually carry it out. His wife stood by him, saying that she never believed her husband ever had any intent to harm her. Fascinating story. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We're going to check traffic and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800.
The saga of vitamin D and COVID-19 continues. We've talked about this several times in the past, and there were some studies that had shown that people who had uh, low levels of vitamin D in their blood were more likely to come down with a positive diagnosis uh, for the coronavirus. But uh, those studies were small and uh, not very convincing. Of course, there's never going to be a final study. There almost never is in, in science. But the most recent one um, takes sort of a, a, a different uh, approach and uh, ends up with a different conclusion. In this particular case, uh, researchers looked at 18,000 adults between the ages of 37 and 56. This was in, in the U.S. And they were tested to see whether or not they had coronavirus antibodies uh, in, in their blood. And uh, of course, that, that is a measure of having been exposed to the virus. Now, the interesting thing here is that all 18,000 of these people uh, had information available about them uh, because before the pandemic, uh, they had had blood tests and in those blood tests, vitamin D levels were recorded. So the researchers knew what their baseline vitamin D level uh, was. Well, it turned out that about one in four had extremely low levels of the nutrient uh, uh, vitamin D in their blood before the pandemic, and another 60% had moderately low levels. Now, it turned out that among these 18,000 participants in the study, uh, 900 eventually tested positive for antibodies, suggesting that they had a previous COVID-19 infection. So the question was, uh, were they more or less likely to fall into the group that had low vitamin D levels? Well, it turned out, no. There was uh, uh, actually a 7% less likely test for positive in those who had moderately low levels. In the ones who had very low levels, uh, that was only a uh, uh, very few number of these people, they actually had somewhat of a higher chance of being tested positive. But overall, uh, it turns out that uh, there was no clear indication that people who have low levels of vitamin D in their blood are more likely to uh, be infected with uh, uh, COVID-19. Now, of course, this is not at all an argument to uh, against vitamin D because there are other benefits of vitamin D. Uh, there's no question, of course, that it is uh, needed absolutely for the absorption of calcium into, into the bloodstream. And uh, if you don't have enough calcium, then of course, the risk of uh, osteoporosis increases. And here in North America, where in the winter we are not exposed to that much sunshine, uh, there are uh, certainly possibilities of having insufficient intake of vitamin D. Because as you know, vitamin D is the sunshine vitamin. It doesn't mean, of course, that it is present in sunshine. Sunshine is just a form of radiation. But that radiation triggers the formation of vitamin D in the bloodstream. So although, you know, I, I mentioned um, this um, uh, paper, recent paper about the lack of evidence that vitamin D protects against COVID-19, it does not mean that vitamin D is a useless substance. Uh, it does play a role in the immune system. Uh, there have been studies about vitamin D having some minor uh, uh, effect on, on cancer prevention. Uh, 
even for Alzheimer's disease, but none of those really are, are provide us with hard evidence. Uh, but um, in the case of COVID-19, it doesn't seem that the original observations that um, uh, increasing vitamin D levels is going to be uh, a preventative. All right. Uh, we hopefully have some answers on the line. Let's go to Craig. Craig. Hi. I wanted to take a stab at the uh, goddess of the dawn. Okay. Stab away. Is it uh, Aurora? Yes, the goddess of the dawn is Aurora. And what is the drug that we are talking about that derives its name from that? Uh, I don't know. I was hoping it would, the answer would be Aurora since you used that as a, as a hint. No, 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 no. The question was about the trade name of this particular antibiotic. The name derives from the name Aurora, who is the Ro Roman goddess of the dawn. Uh, I guess after. I misunderstood the question. Yeah, we're after I gave the it name to the next of guy. that. Well, I give you a clue that maybe gives it away for you, if you know anything about science. Uh, it, this particular class of antibiotics is so named because there are four rings of carbon atoms in its molecular structure. And four in Latin is what? Oh, young up. All right. Uh, let's try John. Yes. Uh, Hi. I was also thinking of the goddess of dawn. Uh, I was thinking of uh, any chemical that has to do with tears. Tears? No, no. We're looking it's for a, a very specific a, antibiotic, rather famous antibiotic, and they, its trade name derives from Aurora, who we have now identified as being the Roman goddess of love. But the question is, in, what in is that? Product, they, they have a, a chemical called carbon... I don't know. I couldn't pronounce it. It was so long, carbon something, you know. But anyway, that's not it. Uh, my first question is, are you aware of the process of converting uh, wood fibers into a glass-like product? Or the qualities apparently are better than glass? And my second question is, scraping the inside of a banana peel and, and eating it, is it more nutritious than actually eating the banana? <laughs> well, those are two unusual questions, I must say. Uh, wood fiber producing glass-like substance? I've never heard of that. I have to look yes, into I that. Yes, I heard the glass... MIT has developed something to convert wood fibers really? into a glass-like. Yeah. How That's was the process? I don't know how. Mm. Because, uh, you know, glass, of course, is, is silicate, it's made mm -hmm. from sand, from silicon dioxide. And uh, wood fiber is cellulose, which is a totally different material. So I, I don't quite see how that would work. But uh, I will look into that to see what uh, what you're referring to. And as far okay. as the, the uh, scraping the inside of a banana, uh, I think it's just banana. <laughs> I, I don't think that there's anything uh, of extra value there. Why would you think that? I don't know. I remember reading somewhere where it was more nutritious eating that part of the banana than the actual banana. I don't. I don't see why that that would be. The only thing I can tell you that it's uh, the inside of the banana is very good for polishing shoes. Okay. <laughs> but but other than that, as far as nutrition goes, I I, uh, I don't see any reason that one should be scraping out the inside of a of a banana. Uh, bananas and, and you know are a very nutritious uh, fruit, 
Although, yeah, you know, technically speaking, technically speaking, it's not a fruit. You know that? Uh, technically speaking, the banana is a berry. Okay. But that's another story for, for another time. But uh, no, I wouldn't go around scraping the inside of the banana. <laughs> okay. Unless you're Thank going you. to use it to polish your shoe. Okay. Okay. All right. So, uh, possibility of making... Uh, Glass-like uh, uh, material from uh, wood fiber. I have to look into that. I I, I don't see what that uh, would all be about, uh, unless it's something like you know comparing glass fiber to wood fiber. That's a different story. Uh, glass fiber is indeed a silicate. It is it is a fiber that is essentially made of of glass, but it's it's thin threads. So it's possible that you can make something like that out of uh, uh, wood fiber. Let me, let me, I, I will look into that to see where that uh, that came from. Anyway, so we still have the question out there. So we identified the Roman goddess of dawn as Aurora, but the question is, what antibiotic derives its name from that uh, goddess? You give us a call at seven nine seven nine zero at five one four seven nine zero zero eight hundred. And the other uh, question that uh, uh, I had out there uh, was um, about uh, shipping a material uh, from uh, from Turkey during the basically during the 13th century, a material called alum to Europe. Why was that done? If you know that, you also give us a call. But right now, we're going to time out and check the CTV news. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. You know, one of the things I uh, really like about doing this show which incidentally happens to be the longest running show on chemistry in the history of the world, 41 years, uh, is that I get to learn things because our listeners uh, pose some interesting questions. So the question about uh, making glass from wood, and uh, actually the, the caller's description was uh, quite correct uh, about, about that. And uh, I think that uh, he was talking about some research uh, at University of Maryland. And you know, the wonders of Googling. I mean, all you have to do is put in wood fiber and glass and, and you know, it, it comes up. And uh, there really is something uh, to this. So what the researchers did was uh, to take planks of wood, which were about a meter long and a millimeter thick, and they brushed these with hydrogen peroxide, uh, just using a paintbrush and then left out these planks of wood in the sun. And it turns out that the wood then turns transparent. Um, I think the explanation is that the lignin, which is a, a kind of a natural binder in, in the glue that holds the cellulose together, that gets um, oxidized and that becomes uh, uh, translucent. And indeed, the uh, these thin planks of wood uh, become clear and, uh, and glass-like. And uh, in order to really harden them, they are infused with an epoxy resin, which doesn't uh, uh, impair their translucence. And uh, 
the researchers talk about how this, of course, is just a prototype experiment, but uh, it might be possible in the future to make window material, which would be, in fact, more resistant to accidental breakage than, uh, than glass. And uh, clear wood is lighter than glass. It has better insulating properties. And that, of course, is important because windows are a, a source of heat loss in, in, in buildings. So it's a very interesting uh, idea. And uh, we'll see if it uh, eventually translates into practical application. I mean, obviously, there are many, many interesting uh, research findings that, for one reason or another, never really make it to the marketplace. But this is uh, interesting. So thanks for uh, updating me on this and for making me look into this, uh, this question. All right, let's go to the lines and see what Liz has to say. Hi, Liz. Hi there, Dr. Joe. Um, I was just wondering about the antibiotic question, if I could possibly try to answer that. You can possibly try. <laughs> oreomycin? <laughs> yes, yes, very good. It is, it is oreomycin. There. And uh, the, clue, the clue that I gave about uh, this class of drugs uh, being made of four fused rings of carbon atoms, well, four, of course, is tetra in Latin, and what we're talking about for four fused rings is tetracycline. That's so right. The tetracyclines are a class of antibiotics. And uh, the uh, I think the most famous one, because it is indeed the first one that was discovered, was chlorotetracycline, isolated yeah. in 1945. From Letterly laboratories. Was, uh, yeah, it was uh, collected uh, from a field on the campus of University of Missouri. And uh, because uh, it is produced by a bacterium that is found in the soil, and this bacterium has this golden color, as does the chlorotetracycline, they named the drug oreomycin. And uh, it became, uh, of course, uh, famous uh, because it was one of, after penicillin, it was one of the first antibiotics that was discovered. Uh, there's a downside to tetracyclines uh, in that uh, if there's exposure in utero, that is, if a pregnant lady is treated with antibiotic, uh, then uh, there's a chance that the developing baby uh, will have permanently discolored teeth, yellow or brown. This can even happen in children up to about eight years old if they're given tetracycline. Uh, once you pass eight years old, there's not much of a risk. So teenagers or adults who are given tetracycline usually to control acne because it controls the bacterium that is responsible for acne, uh, they don't experience the uh, tooth uh, discoloration um, issue. Now, there's a very interesting kind of a footnote to the whole tetracycline uh, story and that uh, uh, tetracycline was actually used going back as much as 1,500 years. And uh, in an interesting twist to this whole story, residues of tetracycline have been found in human bones from Nubia, and that's present-day Sudan. And they date back, as I said, some 1,500 years. And evidence indicates that uh, the chlorotetracycline came from grain that was contaminated by Streptomyces bacteria, which is, are the ones that produces antibiotic. And that grain was used to make beer. So perhaps the ancient Nubians recognized the health effects of beer and then deliberately produced it, maybe, or it was just accidental. Of course, they would not have known about tetracycline. And today, tetracyclines are used in a more limited way 
because uh, resistance trains have uh, emerged and uh, some of that is, is blamed on the use of these antibiotics in the feeding of pigs and chickens and cattle to control disease and promote growth. So there you go. There's a story of uh, oreomycin and uh, you're uh, to be uh, congratulated for getting that right. Thank you. Fascinating okay. stuff. Thank you. Good. Thank you. All right. I, I will now replace that question, as I always do, with another one so that you can puzzle over it. And um, this is about the Renaissance Italian physician who had the intriguing name of Santorio Santorio. Same first name and the same family name. And uh, the Renaissance, of course, was basically the 16th, 17th centuries. And uh, Santorio is regarded as the father of experimental physiology. His classic experiment, which is visible as a drawing in many, many books, involved a specially designed chair. What was special about this chair? So we're looking for the exploits of Santorio Santorio, the physician of the Renaissance. He was a Venetian, actually. Uh, he was also a university professor, but he was a physician. He even treated Galileo, apparently. And uh, anyway, uh, he is known as the father of experimental physiology because of uh, uh, studies that involved a very special chair that he designed. So the question is, what about that chair? What was so special about that? If you know, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. All right. Uh, I want to also talk a little bit uh, about amethyst. Why? Because I like it. Uh, there's a very attractive ameth amethyst geode that sits on my desk. What are they? Well, geodes are rocks with an internal cavity that is filled with crystals of a mineral. And in the case of amethyst, that mineral is quartz, tainted with iron and manganese impurities, and the color is a very eye-catching purple. Uh, the geode really has no function except to, to satisfy my, uh, some would say, peculiar passion for collecting objects that have stories to tell. And with amethyst, uh, the story is about its name derived from the Greek for wine, and it traces to an ancient belief that wine-colored crystals can ward off drunkenness. The notion that amethyst is an antidote for intoxication is a myth. But the ancient Greeks, as we well know, were, of course, deeply into myths. Life was thought to be controlled by their many gods, each of whom had specialties. Dionysus was the god of wine and intoxication. And what did he have to do with amethyst? Well, here the story becomes a little bit complicated. It seems that Dionysus' affections were not limited to wine. He had a taste for mortal ladies as well. A particular subject of his affections was a maiden who just happened to be named Amethystos. Since the, Greek, since the ancient Greek word for drunkenness is methyl and the prefix a can be translated as not, one might surmise that Amethystos was not into partaking of wine and that she was not into those who favored wine partaking of her. The girl presented a challenge, which is what may have excited Dionysus. She, however, was not interested in his advances and prayed to the goddess Artemis to remain chaste. Artemis seems to have been blessed with somewhat of a whimsical nature, 
and answered Amethystal's prayer by turning her into white stone. That put a quick end to Dionysus's chase, at which point the frustrated god poured wine on the white stone, dyeing the crystals purple. The purple stone became known as Amethyst after the name of the maiden who had successfully resisted Dionysus' amorous advances by turning into stone. One wonders if she would have reconsidered her prayers had she known the outcome. Perhaps a little tryst with the god of wine may have been preferable to being turned into stone. Now you know why I have an amethyst crystal sitting on my desk. All right, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to check traffic and be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figuring out what's true. Okay, let's go to Caroline. Yeah, hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. Hi, I want to answer the question or try to answer the question about alum. So yes. I, I think it's that um, Flanders is a real center of flax production and, and linen making. And that alum was used to prepare the linen to receive dyes. It like, removed all sorts of impurities from the fibers. Yes, you're you're ninety eight percent right. <laughs> the uh, the the uh, alum was used as what we call a mordant, that comes from the Latin mordere to bite. Mordants are substances that that will bind the dye to the the fabric. So the the alum was needed not not really to to change the quality of the fabric, but to to bind the dye uh, dye to it. And uh, of course, dyes, natural dyes, have been around since uh, antiquity. You know, people wonder about that uh, because uh, obviously today we use a lot of synthetic dyes, and you know, uh, often I have uh, spoken about the history of uh, synthetic dyes because it's so interesting. But uh, natural dyes, of course, go back to to antiquity, probably to to you know our ancestors having noticed at some time that that. Uh, if they got some berry juice on a fabric, then uh, the fabric became colored. And uh, eventually, of course, they learned about safflower or saffron, which gave yellow, and the, the roots of the matter plant gave a red. Henna could give sort of a, a brownish color. Woad and indigo gave, gave blue. Uh, so these were the natural dyes that, that were used. But the trouble was that that if you dyed fabric with these, and then you washed the fabric, and uh, you know, believe it or not, uh, they did know how to wash fabrics uh, because uh, the use of soap uh, also has a very very long uh, history, and uh, they discovered, of course, that the the dye was not steadfast, and that started a search for somehow binding the dyes more strongly to the fabric and discovered uh, alum, which is potassium aluminum hmm. sulfate. And uh, they, that was found in mines in, in Turkey. And uh, you know, to go to Europe in those days from Turkey, you had to go through the Straits of Gibraltar. And that was quite a roundabout uh, way. And uh, in 1455, uh, the uh, Turks captured the mines, which were run by the uh, Genoese. And that triggered a, a famine for alum in Europe. 
until deposits were discovered in, in Italy, in Tolfa, which is just uh, north of Rome. And that provided a lot of revenue for the Italians uh, and uh, uh, made a big contribution to the wealth of uh, Renaissance uh, uh, Rome. So there's a, the story of, uh, of alum. And I also had a, a couple of people who texted in their possible answers. Uh, one of them merits uh, uh, a little discussion because it said it, it, uh, that um, uh, alum is used in styptic pencils, which is true. Uh, alum will coagulate blood so that when you cut yourself shaving, you can use a styptic pencil to kind of close the wound. Uh, and I uh, suggested that this was the reason that uh, it was being imported. Uh, no, I, I don't think that there were enough people cutting themselves shaving in Europe at that time to warrant the importing of 8,000 tons of alum a year from, uh, from Turkey. But the dye industry, that's a different story. That mm. needed a lot of, um, of alum, and, a lot of, and alum is still used today in the dye industry. Okay, that's a very good answer to the question. Well, all right. Thanks. So I thanks for all the info. Okay, it was thank you. Interesting. Bye. Yeah. Uh, so we do have still one outstanding uh, question uh, about the Renaissance Italian physician Santorio Santorio, who is regarded as the father of experimental physiology, and uh, his classic experiment involved a specially designed chair. And uh, my question was, what was special about that chair? All right. There are. Um, as always, there are a lot of questions uh, that come in by text and not possible to answer them all. But someone wanted to know about the removal of cat urine from, um, from clothing. And uh, that indeed can be a challenge. Uh, it is a decidedly unpleasant smell. And uh, I, I think that if you uh, Google, uh, you'll find all kinds of potential solutions about soaking with vinegar or washing with baking soda or treating with hydrogen peroxide, none of those will work very well for getting rid of the urine smell. Uh, the, uh, the compounds in, in urine, that, that especially cat pee, that are so potent are various kinds of, um, of amines. And uh, those have like a fishy kind of, uh, of fragrance. And uh, in order to get rid of that smell, what you really need to do is to decompose those, uh, those compounds. And uh, one way to do that is with enzymes. And, and there are enzymes that are um, produced in soil by bacteria that will do this. And if you go to a pet store, they will have a variety of these enzyme preparations uh, that are um, quite uh, potent at removing urine. Uh, so I, I would say that when you, you have a, a cat urine problem at home, don't try to fiddle around with these uh, folkloric remedies. Uh, go to the pet store and, and find um, a product that, uh, that actually uh, does work. Uh, one of the compounds that is, is present in, in, in cat urine is urea. Uh, and uh, urea, of course, is, is sort of uh, a very important compound uh, to organic chemists. And uh, it, um, you know, uh, we tell a lot of stories about it in organic chemistry courses, because in 1828, Friedrich Wöhler, a well-known German organic chemist, managed to make urea in the laboratory uh, by uh, heating up a, a type of mineral called uh, ammonium isocyanate. And why was that important? 
because urea uh, was a substance that was produced by a living system, right? Humans and animals. So it was referred to as a, an organic compound. In those days, organic materials were substances that were produced only by living uh, uh, entities. And it was believed that uh, these, um, these substances had some sort of a built-in life force that could not be replicated in the laboratory. And in one fell swoop in 1828, Friedrich Wöhler, by just heating up a, a mineral substance and converting it into urea, dispelled this theory of life force. There was not really nothing special about urea. It didn't have any any kind of, of you know uh, soul, <laughs> you know, or, or life force as it was believed at that time. And uh, this destroyed the sort of the inequality between organic substances and inorganic substances, because it was apparent that you could make these, uh, you could replicate these naturally occurring substances uh, in the laboratory. And this uh, distinction between uh, organic and inorganic substances still haunts us to, the, to this day, because there are people out there who believe that natural substances are, are somehow preferable to anything that is synthesized in the lab because they have some sort of special inherent property. They don't. The properties of any material are determined by its molecular structure, not by whether it was uh, made in the lab or whether it was made in, in, in a plant. All right, that is it. We have run out of time once more. The hour has flown by, but fret not because we will be back with another hour next week at the same time. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all of the chemistry in your life comes out just right.